0: Welcome to the 174th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. In Ear to the Ground 173, we discussed Indiana's Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, an integrated team approach that has brought together farmers, conservation agency experts, scientists, and agribusiness firms over the past few years. Their common goal is to improve soil health in the Hoosier State by establishing, among other things, more cover crops in corn and soybean fields that are normally bare from late fall into early spring. The Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative's approach has turned out to be quite successful with approximately 1 million acres of Indiana cropland now protected with cover crops. This success has come at a time when many other Corn Belt states are struggling to increase cover cropped acres significantly, and Indiana has become a national model for promoting and supporting soil-friendly farming practices. It's hoped that this success with cover cropping will prompt Indiana farmers to go beyond this one practice and establish integrated, holistic production systems that can build soil health in the long term. I recently attended a series of Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative field days in Indiana. One of the presenters at these events was Ray Weil, a soil ecologist at the University of Maryland and the co-author of the influential textbook, The Nature and Properties of Soils. During the field days, Weil talked about how Maryland has also had a lot of success getting large expanses of acreage protected with cover crops. But environmental officials in that eastern state have taken a much different approach when compared to Indiana. For one thing, through what is called a flush tax, Maryland pays farmers outright to plant cover crops. The good news is farmers there have an economic incentive to keep their land in continuous living cover throughout the year. The bad news, according to Weil, is that they have little incentive to take a holistic, big-picture approach to building soil health beyond qualifying for that one subsidy. After one of the field days, I talked to while about Maryland's situation – and why he thinks Indiana's integrated, education-based approach to improving soil health is preferable in areas like the Midwestern Corn Belt.
1: Starting in the late 70s, uh, we realized that the Chesapeake Bay, as a body of water, was in bad shape. You know, It used to be an enormously productive fishery. And if you look at the Maryland flag and seal, it actually has, it's kind of a nice, you know, going back to the colonial days, it actually has got um, a farmer and a waterman on it. The farmer's got a shovel or something in his hand, and the waterman has, I don't know what it is, a net or something. So those two occupations, going way back to the colonial days, were the mainstay of the Maryland economy, watermen and farmers. And uh, the watermen were the people that, uh, you know, they were fishermen, but they, they were also uh, crabbers, you know, getting the blue blue crabs are a big thing in Maryland, uh, if you go to it's a maryland specialty and oysters used to be huge we had our own sailing fleet and you know it's a long tradition way of life of oystering which is virtually gone now because the oysters all disappeared from a combination of disease and pollution so it was in the late 70s that people began to realize that hey we've really messed up the chesapeake bay if you look at the oyster production it peaked in the early 20th century it was the oyster capital of the world and I took my son out on an oyster sailboat. They're called a skipjack. It's a specially, it's a, you know, we have a long history in the Chesapeake Bay. We have our own breed of dogs. There's a Chesapeake Bay Retriever. We have our own breed of sailboats. It's the the skipjack. And it was designed for tacking back and forth for oystering and getting the oysters off the oyster oyster beds and uh, so it's a, it's kind of a romantic uh, you know historical thing and they and they actually had uh, much like in deer hunting you have a bow season and a gun season well in oystering we had a you know a skipjack season they could go out early in the sailboats without motors all right? So, so you know, that kind, of, that kind of thing. So it's a real part of a Amer- uh, Maryland culture and history. But the EPA pulled together this multi-state regional group that committed to reducing nutrients. The scientists figured out that they needed to reduce the nutrient flow into the bay by 40% in order to stop the decline and help it recover. That, you know, whether that was right or wrong, that was their goal. Tough to meet. You know, decade go by, they had goals set, they'd miss them, you know, so... The, Volunteer programs, you know, you kept missing the goals. Maryland started looking at where where are the nutrients coming from. The easy part was the sewage treatment plants and banning phosphate detergents and stuff like that. That's fairly easy to legislate. You know, it's just a matter of throwing a little money at it and you can get it done. So they cleaned up that stuff pretty well. The next big chunk was agriculture especially with the development of the poultry industry, uh, you know, which, which brings a whole lot of nutrients in. This is, again, one of those things that people are unconscious of. You put a lot of chickens in a place, it's the fact that you're not growing all the feed right there. So you're concentrating nutrients that really are out of balance from what you can use, and that pretty quickly gets out of hand. Right? And it's the same story here, right? So we have two things that are kind of unique. One is we have a very strong payment for planting cover crops because using cover this is this is directed at nitrogen and they did an analysis of all the different ways they could reduce the nitrogen load and cover crops came out as one of the best most efficient ways. In other words, you could get keep more nitrogen out of the bay by spending a dollar on cover crops than spending a dollar on sewage treatment or lots of other possible options. So they decided okay we're gonna to try to do cover crops and we're gonna do it aimed at nitrogen. Not so it was pretty myopic. It wasn't aimed at you know more profitable farming and it wasn't aimed at improving soil quality and all the diversity and all these other things. It could have been it was focused on nitrogen. It was one goal and they looked at the data and we didn't you know and, and so the program was set up so it incentivized doing what was going to keep nitrogen out of the bay. And they were pretty damn generous. I'm not sure how they came up with uh, the payment levels, but they must have consulted with some guys, some farmers and stuff that padded the accounts. Let's just, let's just say I think it at least pays your total costs. <laughs> Probably you can make some money growing the cover crops. We had the advantage of having about 7 million people in the state and only about a million acres of cropland uh, that we were targeting. So that means their taxpayer would have a relatively low burden. So it's kind of the reverse ratio. Say the state in Indiana, I think, has got about the same number of people, but about 10, 11, 12 times as much cropland. So it would be unlikely you could afford to do that. But Marylanders, first of all, were very motivated to save the Bay. This was part of their history and identity. And cover crops was the most efficient way to do it. So it was... They voted in a new tax that is part of, that's paid as part of your water bill and sewage bill, and uh, so this is mostly urban people that are paying it, you know. And uh, so it's Chesapeake Bay restoration, and a chunk of that goes to cover crops. About twenty, I think this year was about twenty-two million dollars. The base payment is forty-five dollars an acre for putting out cover crop seeds, and it's and it's um it's an action based because of course you know if you're in a government program you have to document what you did and the easiest way is you show the receipts for your seed and you document that it was planted it's a little harder to document that you actually got a stand or that you got certain so so we don't know what the actual results were but we know what people did so you get paid to plant the cover crop 45 dollars an acre for the basic planting and then there are incentives to get you to do it in places where it's going to capture more nitrogen so there's extra payment for using rye as your cover crop, extra payment for doing it earlier in fall, uh, extra payment if it's a field that had manure spread on it in spring, uh, because that would be one that would need more. So it can go all the way up to $90 an acre. And in fact, in the past, it was even a little higher than that. So with that kind of incentive, and with no acreage cap, initially there were some acreage caps, but uh, you know, the idea wasn't, this was not... To give income to farmers like maybe the crop insurance program is really a way of taking money out of city dwellers and putting them in the rural right it's a political decision this was aimed at nitrogen this was a, this the the subsidies came on around the same time that the nutrient management plans became mandatory and they decided well any large field so if you were thinking of corn and soybeans think of well, any field those anything let's say ten acres or something might produce you know a couple thousand dollars worth of Crop, so that's they. They did this, you know. Government programs you have to define it somehow. So the way they defined it was any, any. I think it was twenty five hundred dollars of gross production. If you have that much, you have to have a nutrient management plan, which makes sense for cornfield. It caught a lot of small vegetable growers <laughs> that really probably didn't have much environmental impact. You know, like a quarter acre of uh, strawberries or something would would also fall under that. Uh, but everybody basically is now under mandatory nutrient management plans they had state people extension people that could make these plans trained to make them but they also did classes and certified you know dealers and applicators and whatnot to private people consultants to do it and farmers themselves could take a training class so they could write their own uh, but they had to be certified and there was a program they developed that you know kind of helped you do that and balance your nutrients and you could not, I mean, you had to follow this plan, and, and particularly for nitrogen and phosphorus, you know, there were limits to what you could put on, and especially where your fields were already high in phosphorus, we had already gone through the nitrogen management and found out we still had phosphorus problems. So there were a lot of fields where you just, you know, you can't put phosphorus on that field. So that's mandatory, and around the same time, they said, well, let's, uh, let's use that. That's the, that's the stick. We'll use, for the cover crops, we'll use a carrot. And and so the the carrot works pretty well, too.
0: You've made it clear in your presentations that this is an example of of how to. you have one goal and you, you do one thing. We have a different demographic here. We don't have the Chesapeake Bay staring us in the face. We have a little bit of a situation over in Ohio with Lake Erie. But in general, in the Corn Belt, especially where I'm from, Minnesota, the Gulf of Mexico is a long ways away. It sounds like, though, that you, from what you've seen, I wonder what you think of this System that has kind of been set up here in Indiana with these hubs of farmers who are kind of working together and are looking at it from a systems approach, I guess how that might may be a way to accomplish the same goals, but maybe in a more I guess holistic or more sustainable way rather than just saying we're going to pay you to do one practice and then that's what you're going to do I think that I, th-
1: I think that's absolutely right. Uh, f- first of all, what we've done in Maryland has definitely reduced the nutrients. That are being loaded into the bay and has actually helped the profitability of agriculture because it, it's mostly cut out money that was being wasted but Changing the situation in the Bay is a very long-term, very slow. And there's a lot of legacy phosphorus in the sediment. Same problem in Lake Erie. There's lots of nitrogen already gone down the Mississippi. Even if you changed everything overnight on the land, it's going to take a long time, which is politically difficult to deal with, right? So you do all these things, you go make the sacrifices, you have the programs, and the end result just is very slow in coming. So we think we've sort of stopped the slide of the Chesapeake Bay and maybe turned it around a little bit. But it, the progress is very painfully slow. That, that's one thing. But what's going on? One thing you do see there, and I've I've just terrifically enjoyed working with farmers over the last ten, fifteen years around the country, including in Minnesota and North Dakota, it was, as you know, is a hotbed of of some of this. Some, you know, so these things happen from the grassroots up, where you had the right farmers and sometimes the right agency people that you know helped coordinate that and stimulate it. But farmers with imagination that. I'm not sure whether it's because of the Internet age or what it is, but I think we have seen completely new phenomena now. I've been in this business in agriculture now since the early 70s, and I've always been kind of an oddball, and I've always been pushing for sustainable ag ever since then. And it was pretty much a voice in the wilderness in the 70s and 80s, and and it was a thin line to walk. Even you know, and, but I've tried to maintain good relationships because I have tremendous respect for farmers of all stripes. It's a, you know, it's a hugely complex and important job. But what we've seen in the last decade or so has just been tremendous. The advent of the rock star farmer, the advent of these grass movements where the farmers that have been trying stuff are able to communicate and the farmers are learning from each other farmer run field days and the farmers are enjoying it you know those that are you know, and and you're they're, they're rising to leadership positions and they're having influence there's still a lot of resistance <laughs> but i think there are a lot of farmers that are looking there's, there's nothing like seeing it work on someone's farm and seeing that yeah they make money at it year after year and well, maybe I can try that too. I'm hoping that this is snowballing. It seems to be growing. I th- I think it's just the best thing that's happened to agriculture in the history of this country, and it's just a hugely exciting time to be part of agriculture. That like the event we went to today, and these are happening all over the country. Indiana has got its act together pretty well. You know where the farmers and the, some of the agency people and the folks at Purdue and Extension seem to be working together and not squabbling. And the, and the idea of having a A hub where, you know, some of the successful farmers are teaching some of the others around it is a great way to help organize it. But when you go to these guys that are challenged and they're solving problems and they're making money doing the right thing, you know, and they're excited about it and they're getting, you know, they're getting credit from their peers and, you know, it's just a terrific dynamic. Yeah, this is this is absolutely terrific. I think most of the country is totally unaware of this, uh, and I guess even even a lot of agriculture is unaware of it. But it's growing, and I'm thinking it's going to hit a tipping point in which it will really change the face of American agriculture for the better, and we'll be in a much better place, uh, more profitable, much better impacts, more sustainable, and uh, probably won't even need those government subsidies. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You can read more about Ray Weil in the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative in the article, King of the Cover Crops, which appears in the number 4, 2015 edition of the Land Stewardship Letter. It's available at www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore@landstewardshipproject.org, at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612 612- Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.